many ways to approach deck building in EDH when you are focusing on flavour over function. Whether you are tying your card choices to magic lore, art style, broad genres or a whole separate franchise entirely, there will likely be something in the 20,000 plus legal cards in Commander to help you craft your perfect pile. Today we'll be focusing on one of my favourite fantasy genres, Cosmic Horror, and building a deck powerful enough to summon the Deep Ones. Welcome to Magic the Flavouring, the Magic the Gathering podcast, where we talk about all things magic, flavour design and lore. I'm your host, Andy Mann. Hello, this is Nathan Cancel. And today we are going to be doing something a little bit different. We are going to be doing a full-on flavour deck tech for an EDH deck. Um, we've done episodes in the past where we have talked about like some of our deck choices and decks that we've already built for ourselves and how we have this kind of conversation between flavour and function. And that is also kind of like our whole deal with this show, if you haven't picked up already, where we talk about... Uh, the kind of the story of the cards tell versus the mechanics and do they sync up and all these kind of things. Um, but we've yet to venture into doing a from scratch deck tech, which focus, focuses almost solely on the lore aspect uh, and the flavor aspect over the function aspect. Um, I mean, I don't know, like you're, you're quite a big function guy. I, I tend to be the kind of sort of feely, emotional yeah. flavor guy out of the two of us. Yeah. Um, Over the years, I've trimmed my, um, my, my my fluffy inhibitions down to being a, to more efficient <laughs> efficient deck choices. But, I mean, even then, like I look through some decks and there's still cards I refuse to let go of because it feels right for the deck. Um, otherwise, you do just end up playing, as we as we found out like last week, like, you know, um, staples are a bit, you know, boring. No one likes a stapler. No one wants a stapler for Christmas. Mm. Um, that's a terrible analogy. Um, I mean, I went with it. I understand what you were saying. Um, yeah, I mean, this is like you know, Magic's got tens of thousands of of cards mm-hmm. in it, right? And so, I think EDH is no sort of secret that EDH is the format where you can afford to be a little bit more emotional with your card choices and mm-hmm. kind of bend to the flavor. Whether it's whether that's like a theme within the context of Magic, like say you're doing a Cisse deck and you want the Weatherlight crew there, or say whether you're doing like a Tribal deck, a Tribal deck is a flavour deck at the end of the day, even if there's a little function that's involved with it. Um, or if you do, like you had your uh, you had your card altar of Joda, Archmage, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was Thanos doing the snap, like the comic panel, and you wanted to do a an endgame. Like, uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, Joda's Infinity War, yeah. Yeah, it would have been really good. Exactly. It would have been really good, and then um, I well, kind of just, it's still we still might do. I tried to make I tried to fit in the Gerard Gerana, the companion that um mm. the Gruul co- companion, and it's kind of changed everything because a lot of the cards had like three black pips in it or whatever because they make you sack half your permanents. So I'm like, oh, now where do I go? This is this is actually kind of key to this conversation because that was the point where I go, where's my flavor versus function bit aspect of mm. this? Um, and it was also a big issue in terms of something like um Fantis, um the war the war weaver was going to be my black widow, even though I wanted something lith and, and agile. Actually, what turned out a big tarantula that makes everyone fight over over her is actually exactly what she was like. So, yeah, it is mm. one of those. Yeah, it, I haven't got round to it probably because I, when it when it comes down to flavor, if I really want something to taste good, God, it takes a long time for me to get through the recipe. <laughs> so, but that was that was you building around like a, an IP that existed and you kind yeah, of think things real world in. exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, like like another direct sort of um, franchise, if you like, and then you can do things that are a bit more broadly themed and. That's kind of where we're sitting today. So the, what we're going to be doing today is looking at one of my favourite uh, fantasy genres, which is the cosmic horror slash Lovecra- uh, Lovecraftian horror trope. So this is something that has been around for, uh, it's almost 100 years now. So H.P. Lovecraft uh, is what Lovecraftian is named after. And he started around, uh, writing around the early 1900s. And he was big into this idea of um, uh, cosmic horror 
and cosmicism. I can't quite think of the word. There's a specific word where basically it's the nihilistic feeling that you are so small in the universe that any cosmic powers that are out there dwarf your ambitions into almost nihilism, like things don't matter. For mm. And he expressed this uh, through like a horror genre. So he, uh, big tropes of uh, cosmic horror is the idea that there are ancient god-like beings that either come from space and now dwell in the oceans or beneath the earth of the planet, and there are cults that summon them up. There's the idea that there are realms and realities and dimensions beyond human mortal understanding that can be accessed through the occult or through ritualistic uh, religious rites, that if you were to understand them or glimpse them or be exposed to them, your tiny mortal brain would implode with the kind of <laughs> cosmic eldritch knowledge that would uh, kind of be brought forth and this genre is is so woven i think into the fabric uh, fabric of fantasy in general now so this was i was saying this is almost a, a a century ago that this was starting to be written that now things like uh D has incorporated a lot of mm-hmm. this I- ideology into their fantasy gaming like the warlock class is essentially the eldritch um sort of class uh any sci-fi which deals with different dimensions or kind of sci-fi gods so the film uh, event horizon for oh, example God, yeah. if you've not seen that go and watch that so yeah exactly that's that's a lovecraftian film uh mm. the john carpenter's the thing is very much a lovecraftian trope film and so it's kind of permeated there's different ends of the spectrum so one end of the spectrum is a very sort of occultist necromantic uh you know even things like zombies so the evil dead franchise for example takes a lot of its cues from lovecraft and then the other end of the spectrum is this kind of sci-fi horror and alien beings from beyond the stars that you know a lot of it is to do with possession and implanting yourself into other people, like the body snatchers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then kind of the the sort of core fantasy tropes kind of sits in the middle of both those things um, and incorporates them all at the same time. Um, I really love this fantasy genre. I will take the caveat now. This is something that's very relevant in magic today, uh, is understanding where your fandom comes from. Um, there are many writers that were around even at the same time as H.P. Lovecraft, and we'll be drawing influences from them today. Um, H.P. Lovecraft as a person was a complete butthole. Um, (laughs) He was was beyond bigoted and racist, even for his own time and place. So he's saying a lot for the 1890s. (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. Like, even, even his contemporaries at the time wrote him letters that are all like you can read all these correspondence so it's it's never explicitly in his works even though a lot of his works do include terminology for people of different races that we're not comfortable with now that is kind of a product of the time um and isn't excusable but is just you understand the context of it but in his personal correspondence between him and in his contemporaries he expresses complete disdain for anyone of a different religion to him a different race uh mm. he's complete uh, is a complete chauvinist and uh is, seems to hate women in many of his correspondence um and a lot of these themes now you look back at his early works and you look at things like his themes of distrust of the other alien invasion uh occult rituals that you don't quite understand and performed by ancient tribes of people you see a lot of these bigotries in his work and this is a very relevant discussion for now because can you separate the artist from the art is very relevant discussion for magic in these days and in fact did inform several card choices that I did or didn't put in the deck because of the conversation that we're having. Sorry, behold the beyond, but your illustrator was a bit of a butthole too. Um, and so you're not in the deck. Um, 
understanding where his mind was, even if it was a foul and horrid mind, does also open you up to a larger and almost better understanding of his work and makes his work that much more horrible mm, and that yeah. much more scary. It informs it quite a lot. Exactly. And whether for better or for worse, that's just the fact of it. And there's many a... um in doing this deck tech, I did read a lot of uh, sort of articles and a lot of breakdowns of of writers of like you know Jewish writers and you know writers from other ethnic minorities talking about Lovecraft because like as a as a white guy like it, it doesn't directly affect me his particular kind of racism mm. so I wanted to hear from people who it did affect and there are there are lots of people in those communities that love Lovecraft but don't love the person so you know there's a big conversation there. Mm. Um, and 100 years ago is a long time to kind of dissect his work and to understand his work as, as for what it was. Um, there is also another side of it saying that the genre very quickly outgrew H.P. Lovecraft. Like we still use the term Lovecraftian, which is a bit of a bummer, but we can also use the terms like Eldritch and Cosmic Horror. Mm. But even writers during his lifetime took his themes and his work and expanded it out so you can enjoy it. And as I say now, it's grown so far beyond the original uh, human who wrote the first few books mm. that uh, the fantasy genre. Well, Stephen kind of King did a very good job of kind of taking that mantle and kind of pushing and taking it in not quite as in the same <laughs> extreme, <laughs> but still had the similar ideas. Like it has a very good um, is a very good example of of the way mm-hmm. that a modern translation of, of Eldritch horror and Lovecraftian horror. This idea of the lights it has um, in its mouth and everything, you know, like sure. Um, I think even, like even the lore of it, like the the creature mm. from it, is meant to be an alien being. Is yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the yeah. old ones, exactly. Yeah. 100%. So that this isn't meant to be a I mean this is a deck tech episode. I know it doesn't sound it so much, but I think it's <laughs> it's just important and I think it is important for fandoms especially in kind of geek nerd culture where our fandoms often have origins or often incorporate uh, artists, writers, creators who we don't necessarily need, especially if they're already dead, you can't shun people who have passed on. Like, do you know what I mean? But mm. it's you need to understand where your fandoms come from and in understanding them that kind of makes you have some sort of responsibility and some sort of uh, accountability for them. Mm. Um, everyone knows that Lovecraft is complete butthole. It doesn't stop you from enjoying the genre. No. It's just you need to understand that yeah. uh, as you move forward. And it might influence, obviously, doing this understanding and getting a greater grasp of their point of view. It might help inform your, in this in this specific circumstance, obviously, your deck choices um, and the way that mm-hmm. you want to take it. So, yeah, it's good to have a perspective on your theme, not just to go, I I like, I don't know what I was going to say, marshmallows. I don't know why I said marshmallows. But if you don't know where marshmallows <laughs> come from, how, how the hell does it, how do you, how can you have any relevance to them? Um, exactly. Um, I'm all right. With the so, analogy today, I'm sorry, Andy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Marshmallows, Staples, fine. Yeah. fine. Get it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Okay, enough with the sermon. Let's jump into the deck text. So I want to incorporate all the themes from Cosmic Horror that we've spoken about. Uh, As I go through all the cards, I will also be branching them under um, themes and kind of have them in subheadings as we go down. Uh, I'll be pulling from specific works. So I will mention some books and some literary works and films and things which inform deck choices. But also these are quite big, broad strokes. Um, A lot of the cards have been taken from the sets Shadows over Innistrad and uh, Eldritch Moon which were literally magics that attempt to do this eldritch horror, cosmic horror trope. Um, I mean, Shadows Over Shadows Over Innistrad, the title for that set, is a play on Shadows Over Innsmouth, which was an H.P. Lovecraft 
book. So mm. even there, like you have those kind of deep connections. And thankfully, there are a lot of other planes of magic because this cosmic horror is so ingrained into fantasy lore that also pull on from these tropes. And there are a few things that I crowbarred in there because I'm not a very good deck builder. Um, and so I put <laughs> them in there. Um, and there are also things which I've really wanted in the deck just for its functionality. So <laughs> I kind of, yeah. I have made up some some rubbish about why they're in the deck. Um, this deck, I will say as well, is not a competitive deck. This is a flavor deck. Um, I did still want it to be playable because I'm a player of magic and I would feel bad if I built this deck in paper, literally not being able to play any sort of game. Um, so I came at this from like a, a two a two thirds flavor, one third functionality perspective. Um, and you will kind of see how that fits and goes around where we go through the deck tech. Um, but yeah, if anyone is going to be tempted to write in the comments of this eventual YouTube video or in the comments of the podcast, oh, why didn't you put X, Y, and Z card in there? It's probably because the flavor didn't sync up with what I wanted to do. Um, and if you do find cards that fit the flavor and are strictly better than some of my choices, stick them on in the comment sections and let me know and uh, and we'll kind of rebuild the deck together. Um, okay, the most important part of this deck is the commander. Of any commander deck, it is the commander. Um, and there are a few choices that I went with. The commander that I chose for this deck is Urtai the Corrupted. Uh, Urtai the Corrupted is a uh, wizard legend. Uh, it's too generic white, blue, black, so we're in Esper Colors for a 3-4 uh, wizard legend with a blue tap sacrifice a creature enchantment to counter target spell. Um, this is a pretty cool card. It's, it's a card that is somewhat playable in EDH outside of themes, but you don't see it too often. Um, and there are a couple of different ways I could have gone with this deck. When I first suggested to you, Nathan, that I uh, did Urtai the Corrupted, you were a little bit skeptical because he pulls a lot of his influences from Phyrexia as opposed to like straight horror is that right like what were your worries when I sort of talked to you about well, yeah, it's like, I guess the um yeah the concern was the initial ties to Phyrexia because Phyrexia is very much like mechanical sci-fi almost like Borg like horror if you know Star Wars and um, not Star Wars Star Trek um so I it was more if you wanted to go more for the unknown almost ethereal side of it Phyrexia is very much not that Phyrexia is tangible you know ta- and, and very much a um a physical horror um so that was the only like making sense but then even saying that like, the idea of this their, 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 the thematic of their um, doctor, indoctrination and the cultist fashion of them, they are that kind of almost like a religious a religious cult of, 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 um, of, of a group. So I do, like, I, I went back, it was more the fact of, um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, it wouldn't, had you gone down the Urtai side of it, then it wouldn't necessarily work for me. But as him as the head of a Esper deck, which again, colours sometimes also, the, the third of functionality might dictate that you need all three colours in there. Um, and mm. that hopefully is much better. And it's you yeah. can argue like back in the day, even old for even old for actually, there was still an aspect of kind of of, of this deep seated kind of um, that works its way in, in between the cracks and kind of corrupts you and that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so it so, does. Yeah. Fine. I've taken I've taken back on my. Um, <laughs> So the, my, my thinking for Urtai the Corrupted is if you were to go hard law on magic law, he's not the most eldritch thing. So you're right, it's more Phyrexia, but I did have those same feelings about Phyrexia, where if you look at new Phyrexia, how it is now, it is very much the orthodoxy of the machine, and it is still incredibly technological and sci-fi. Um, but if you look at original Phyrexia under Yorgmoth, whilst those elements are obviously still there, it's still very much like sci-fi fantasy. And mm. there are elements of body horror with Urtai. In this artwork, he's got four arms, for example. Body horror is one of those big tropes in uh, in Lovecraftian lore, and um, the idea that you are your physical body is actually corrupted 
by these ancient old beings because you're so imbued with their dark power. Um, I liked the fact that he sacrifices creatures and enchantments to counter spells because, as we see with the rest of the deck, this is going to have some elements of aristocrats and graveyard synergies and some mill synergies as well. So it had all that fire mechanically. Um, but I also, like, if you look at Urtai as like a broad stroke, he was a human wizard from Dominaria that when he came to the religion almost of Phyrexia, he became completely corrupted and like fully uh, succumbed to those dark thoughts. And I just thought that really solidified him as being a cult leader um, of sorts, where he was being indoctrinated into a larger religion. Mm. Um, I also think it was really important to have those three colours. So the white, blue, black Esper colours, for me that that is what a cult colour should be. You have the white religion and sort of society aspects. You have the blue um, sort of thirst for knowledge, which a lot of uh, cult aspects in in cosmic horror books are always looking for like some sign of the beyond and some larger knowledge. And then you have the black sort of selfish, corrupted ideals as well. So that kind of Esper colour wheel was definitely important. The other two commanders that I considered was one that you were fairly hot on when I first suggested this deck uh, to you was Ailey, uh, Eternal Pilgrim um, because her story is that she is following the Eldrazi and the Eldrazi as we'll come to see in this deck become very important because they are essentially the flying spaghetti monsters of Eldritch Horror which Magic have uh, incorporated into their lore um, and her story as Magic the Gathering lore is very much what we would want for this kind of deck. Um she missed blue. I really wanted blue for this deck, and there are plenty of blue cards that really fit in, so unfortunately she didn't quite make the cut. And the other one is our big bad Emrakul, the promised end. Uh, Emrakul will be in this deck. She is beginning to basically be our uh, overarching eldritch god that we're trying to summon throughout the deck. Um, she suffers, unfortunately, for not having any colours in her commander <laughs> colour identity. So I would have to have done a colourless deck, which is just not viable. Both of those uh, options are still in the 99, but Urtai the Corrupted is going to mm. head up our deck. So the main strategy of the deck then, I alluded to it several times there, this is a blend of aristocrats, uh, mill strategy, and graveyard uh, strategies as well. And basically the end point of the deck is we want all of our machinations to culminate in the summoning of Emrakul, the promised end. This will be our eldritch god, which we will summon and bring into being. And then we're going to smack our opponents in the face with a giant Eldrazi god. Uh, Emrakul, the promised end, just read her. Uh... A 13-13 Eldrazi for 13 colourless mana. So we're not kidding around with this uh, with this Eldrazi god. Her abilities are Emrakul the Promise End costs one generic less to cast for each card type among the cards in your graveyard. And when you cast Emrakul the Promise End, you gain control of a target opponent during that player's next turn. After that turn, that player takes an extra turn. She's a flying trample protection from instance. So obviously we could hard cast her with 13 mana. Um... In a theme deck with almost no ramp, that's pretty impossible, I'm not going to lie. So the way we want to do this is by putting permanents into our graveyard to try and bring down that casting cost. As I said, Urtai the Corrupted can already sacrifice creatures and enchantments, so that's two card types right there. And we're going to see if we can you know, fill up our graveyard in other ways as well. Um, she's not going to be the only Elder sort of eldritch god in our deck. There are going to be plenty of others, and we'll get to those in just a moment. But firstly, we need to talk about cults. So, uh, one of the big themes in 
cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror is this idea of human cults being uh, offering themselves up to eldritch gods in an effort to either praise them, stave them off, or bring them, summon them into our mortal realm. Uh, you can see this in a lot of the iconography. So there's when it comes to Lovecraft's specific stories, the first uh, of the Cthulhu mythos, Cthulhu being the Eldritch God that has kind of made its way into the mainstream the most, um, was Call of Cthulhu. And in this uh, short story, uh, we have a narrator that's talking about all these different tribes across the world, all these ancient peoples who are praising uh, Cthulhu and basically chanting their name to bring them into the mortal realm. And so our cult's going to be based off of that. Almost every other Lovecraft story has an element of cultism in it as well. Um, and yeah, when I was talking, looking through the deck, basically I need bodies to sacrifice. That's my main thing, as well as some uh, utility as well. So we're going to go down the list. Um, first up, we have Thraben Doomsayer. Gather the townsfolk and increasing devotion. Uh, these are all cards that can create tokens for you to sacrifice. Pretty simple there and build up the bulk of your congregation. Uh, Rites of Belzenlock is a black saga from Dominaria that has a heavy cleric theme for starters, which is a bit of a flavor win there. Can also create tokens on its first two steps and then its third step also gets extra points for summoning you a demon. Uh, we will be looking at demons as well as Eldrazi for Elder Gods because... Uh, even though Cthulhu is seen as being like the Lovecraft god, there are actually many Lovecraft gods, and not all of them are spaghetti monsters. Some of them are more like classic demons and devils, so we'll include some demons as well. Uh, Hanweir Captain uh, slash Westvale Cult Leader. This is a transform card from Shadows Over Innistrad. This was actually the card, pretty much, that inspired me to make this deck. Um, this is a card that, on the Hanweir Captain side, if you control four other creatures, you flip Hamware Captain into Westfield Cult Leader, and then the Cult Leader can start tapping to make other uh, cultists for you as well. So this is another good uh, token generator, and the flavor for it is really solid as well. Um, Vessel of Ephemera. This is an enchantment that's part of a cycle from Shadows Over Innistrad, uh, and this one specifically, when you sacrifice it, you create two spirit tokens. Um, spirits and ghosts, whilst they are in the Lovecraft lore, this one I will say is a bit on the sort of... Uh, more classic horror side um but there are uh, imagery throughout all these stories that is about these uh, trinkets and vessels and uh, sort of artifacts that cults kind of carry around with them in praise their lord and we'll have a whole section on those as well but this is good one for the cult um westvale abbey is another really good token generator so this is the land where you can create cult tokens uh or cleric tokens um, also, extra points for this one being another transform card that when you sacrifice five, uh, is it five permanents or five creatures? creatures. It's five creatures. Yeah. yeah, when you sacrifice five creatures, it transforms into Ormondal, Profane Prince, which is a 9-7 demon with flying lifelink and instructable and haste. So this is firing on all cylinders for me, flavor-wise. It's also nice to have like a, um, flavor-wise, to have like a location for your cult. Many of them, in modern stories, it's more... Uh, that they're in some sort of hideout in the countryside. But in some of the earlier stories, they were often churches that were corrupted, for example. And Westvale Abbey, in the context of Magic the Gathering, is a church of Abyssin that was uh, corrupted to be in service to this demon. Uh, we also then have a card which I love. Uh, this one is mechanically not good at all in this deck, but is just firing on all cylinders flavor-wise, and that is Welcome to the Fold. So Welcome to the Fold is a sorcery, 
uh, where you gain control of target creature if its toughness is two or less. Uh, if Welcome to the Fold's madness cost was paid, instead, instead gain control of a creature if its toughness is X or less. And its madness cost is X blue blue. Uh, and the artwork by David Plumbo shows a cult leader putting a robe around a cult initiate. Like, that's just... It's just... That is everything to do with this deck. And I love the idea that whilst we're creating our own uh, cult uh, followers and our own cultists, we can also bring someone else's creature into the fold and potentially sacrifice them in mm. favour to our gods. I just think, yeah, I just think that's that's properly everything that needs to be there. Um, thoughts on my on my cult, uh, cult followers so far? Yeah, I like them. I like them. I also like the fact that you didn't just go the Shadowborn Apostle route. Um, because that's mm. one thing you could have done is you could have just gone, ah, generic, generic, just random clerics and demons. Yeah, easy peasy. But yeah, then, for sure. But then that you're losing so much flavor at that point because you don't get to have all the texture and everything. I think, um, as you stood, as you said, the um, the the flip, the flip card um, is one of my favorites. Hammer Captain. Yeah, she's really cool. Um, I mean, I could have when I was building this deck. The thing, the thing with the Eldritch Horror trope is that there are, there's about even in the discard cards which I didn't even look, of which I looked at and then decided not to use. There's like another three whole decks in here <laughs> worth of uh, like EDH decks, mm-hmm. and that's just including the ones that I looked at. Um, I'm going to include the link to the tapped out in the description box below, which we'll have our deck list on. And on the maybe board, there are 25 other cards, and those are just the ones that I bothered to type into tapped out. Shadowborn Apostles is very good, and if you want to go down the more like demonology route, like that is a deck that exists in many different iterations. Very um, hard to build these days, though, because <laughs> you need like thirty of them, and it's really hard to get hold of thirty. Really of them. hard to get hold of them. Um, but I did also want to focus on the Eldrazi over the demons, even though yeah, I am including demons. So there we go. So that kind of makes up the um, like the bodies of our cult. There are other cultists that I will talk about soon, uh, but those kind of make up the ones which are, is the kind of core of the congregation. Um, another sort of big trope which kind of follows all this uh, cult aspect of, of Lovecraft and cosmic horror is the idea of sacrifice uh, whether it's ritualistic sacrifice or whether it's people uh, committing like uh, mass suicides uh, in order to offer themselves up to the Eldritch gods and so this kind of brings us into our first sort of real core strategy of the aristocrats build so I want to fill up the graveyard if I can at any point in the game with creature cards or with uh, different permanents that can be sacrificed which will make Emrakul ultimately a lot easier to cast um, so we have creatures that can help us do this and these kind of act as our cult leaders if you like so we have Ailey Eternal Pilgrim who we spoke about as being a potential commander for the deck we have Whisper Blood Liturgist Priest of the Forgotten Gods Skurzdag Flayer and Pious Evangel slash Wayward Disciple so all of these guys uh, act as our kind of sacrifices for our other creatures. Um, I really like Priest of the Forgotten Gods because even though this is a card from Ravnica, it had a real sort of dark religion feel to it. Mm. Um, and everything about the flavor of that card, even in the context of Ravnica, suggests that on other planes of the multiverse, there are these hidden deep gods which yeah. kind of over overlay, over livers don't know are there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really like that. Yeah, especially when you consider that most, like, especially magic for- formats, like the thing that made the Eldrazi kind of the most scary thing was the fact that like, it's the first time people weren't really aware of the things that were happening. Most people know, like, oh yeah, we've got demons, we got, we got yeah, we got we got dragons and stuff like this. Is all fine. We're used to it. It's quite nice to know that even within the fantasy IP, there are still things that even the people that are in in the know don't know. Um, yeah, and it's, I guess it's also what made the Nephilim like the first like big cosmic kind of like what what the hell are these things? So glad that they went back and and d- d- del- delve deeper on those guys. But you know, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, extra points goes to Pious Evangel slash Wayward Disciple. This is another flip card that's very similar to uh, Hamway Captain slash uh, Westfell Cult Leader. And um, Pious Evangel can also sacrifice uh, just. 
permanents as well. Mm. So if we've got a tricky permanent where we don't have another sack outlet for, like artifacts and enchantments and lands especially are quite hard to sacrifice unless you have very specific examples. Um, so yeah. Yeah, very cool for that. Um, and also the flavor on uh, Wayward Disciple is really cool, where we see a religious figure literally being corrupted into a uh, sort of mm. dark version of themselves. Really cool. I've also wanted to put Whisper Blood Liturgist in a deck for a long time. I've never yeah, quite... right? I've, I've, she she, she never makes a cut. It's really annoying. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You kind of got yeah, yeah. There are better options. I mean, you'll have a, you've got, um, you'll have a Doom Necromancer you'll talk about coming up, but there's a couple of other ones that are similar like that. I'm like, I just can't afford, and it's not the fact it's a four mana thing, it's a four mana one one. I'm like, it just dies to everything. It dies to mm. a breath of wind. So like, yeah, no, unfortunately, I'm, I'm glad you got <laughs> her in. Glad you got her in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, another card that will also help us sacrifice permanents uh, or sacrifice creatures is Village Rights. Uh, Village Rights is a one black for an instant as an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice a creature, draw two cards. Um, pretty efficient, really, in any deck, like mechanically. Mm. But flavorfully, it's got Bud Cook is the artist. Uh, this is from 21, this card. And is very reminiscent of another Bud Cook card from original Innistrad called Village Cannibals, which was also another card that could have made it into this deck and the artwork we spoke about it on the show before it shows uh from the point of view of the victim um is about to be murdered by a bunch of hooded figures who are we assume are like a village cult which he himself is a part of and the flavor text reads you were so eager to take and consume yet when asked to give you refuse um mm. This is, this is a cult card through and through, so it's yeah, it's in the deck. It's, it's efficient as well, which is nice. Um, Death Cultist, Doomed Necromancer, Exultant Cultist, and Selhof, uh, Selhof Cultist are all sack payoffs. Um, so these thematically all pretty uh, solid. So what I want in building this deck, I did go on to things like Scryfall and Gatherer and other sort of uh, card libraries, and I literally typed in the word Cultist and to see sort of what came up, because it's not a creature type, but it's a name type. Uh, and some of them are really good, like Exultant Cultist, and some of them are terrible, like Death Cultist. But <laughs> they all make it into the deck, they're all flavorfully on theme, and they all have some kind of payoff mm. when they die. Um, Doomed Necromancer is an interesting one. So Doomed Necromancer reads, it's two generic and a black for a human cleric mercenary 2-2, uh, and you pay a black, tap it, sacrifice Doomed Necromancer, and you can return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Now, obviously this is good graveyard recursion just for extra bodies, but when we start getting further into the deck, we'll start diving into some of the mill strategies. And one of the big concerns with trying to summon our Eldritch Gods is that we will accidentally bin them as well. So this Doom Necromancer is a really efficient way to be able to play your strategy with almost like no fear of losing your big payoffs for the end of the deck so yeah really cool uh really glad he's in the deck there um the last uh sort of sacrificial cultist that i put into the deck is blood celebrant blood celebrant's a little bit different to the others because he doesn't sacrifice permanents or creatures uh blood celebrant is one black for a one one cleric uh pay a black pay a life add one mana of any color to your mana pool so you're essentially mana fixing turning any black uh lands that you have into one of any color and you pay some life and i just like the idea that you are literally giving up your own lifeblood to gain further power to summon your gods like that's that's really sort of like visceral and right there um so i really like it mm. um yeah thoughts on my sacrificial cultists yeah i like them even like the um the kind of if yeah i mean we'll we'll, we'll shit on um death cultists a little but only because it also works really well with urtai because you need bodies to sacrifice as well um so yeah. the fact that worst case scenario you can counter a spell with it is quite it's quite nice and it's, it's well, sometimes 
I mean, sometimes, you know, I mean, you've got to sacrifice a little bit of flavor for the, fu- um, for a little bit of function for the flavor. And if it still functions directly with your commander, which they will all will do if they're, as long as they're on a base level of creature or enchantment, then you can kind of get away with flexing as much as you want to into the flavor side of it, I think. Sure. So Death Cultist, just to read for you guys, is uh, one black for a 1-1. One, one. Sacrifice Death Cultist, target player loses one life and you gain one life. Um you're probably not going to get there in EDH with that ability, unless you infi loop it. But... <laughs> if you do, oh my gosh. No, you've got I mean, yeah. There are no, as far as I'm aware, there are no infinite combos in this deck, but you never know. Sometimes weird stuff happens. Um, the last couple of bits for my cults, uh, cult theme that I'm going to touch on is the general cultishness. Um, or I was going to say cultiness, but that sounds too close to something else. So cultishness. Um, so I have Dark Ritual, Profane Procession, uh, slash Tomb of the Dark Swords. So just two cards. Uh, Dark Ritual... Everyone should know, pay a black, get three black back. Uh, back. Um, classic EDH card, classic magic card, ramps you very good, has the dark ritual aspects of it. And then Profane Procession slash Tomb of the Dusk Rose is the flip enchantment from Ixalan. Uh, and is kind of hard to get off. So Profane Procession is one white black for a legendary enchantment. You can pay three generic white black to exile target creature. Then if there are three or more cards in exile underneath Profane Procession, you flip it into Tomb of the Dusk Rose, where you can tap for a mana, and then you can play two generic white-black to tap it and put creature card that's exiled uh, with this permanent onto the battlefield under your control. So again, it's a little bit like Welcome to the Fold, where you could potentially steal other people for your own cult. Um, it takes a lot of mana. You've managed to get it off on me before, <laughs> when uh, I think in one of our very early episodes, we spoke about how you stole yeah. my own. Yeah, I, I don't um, think it's in the deck anymore. <laughs> I was like, you know what, I think, I think I've peaked. I think I've peaked. I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very expensive, but the artwork uh, by uh, Bastian L. Dahame is very cool. It shows the cult of the Dusk Rose on Ixalan literally at a tomb, and they're all wearing hoods and they're burning incense. And so, yeah, again, flavorfully, just fires more cylinders. Mm. Um, and also, there's very little white in this deck, so any black-white permanents that fit the bill, I was kind of keen to put them in, because <laughs> I don't really like it when there's only a splash color. I don't know why. For me personally, Personally, deck building splash colors in, in EDH doesn't really work for me. Yeah. I don't it's know also why. more annoying for deck building as well because I, I have I have a big thing of where I don't mind being solidly three colors, but if there's only one card in the deck that is like say black black in the in the pits, mm. and every other card in the deck deck doesn't have double of anything, I'm like, ah, uh, do I do I really need it? Because um, it's always that it's, you just know you're always going to find yourself in that situation of where you want you want the double white or you want the double black. You just typically don't because you went, but I only need like three or four sources. What's the likelihood? Well, good job you found it. You found the likelihood that you have to deal with it. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's, that's that's a, I think that's mm. um, that's an aesthetic feeling. Uh, you can't say aesthetic feeling, but that is a feeling of aesthetics. I think yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, and that is essentially my cult. That is the main bulk of them. So you can't really have a cult without having some sort of god, uh, and we are going to include quite a few of them. So our next section are the Deep Ones. Um, the Deep Ones in Eldritch uh, lore and cosmic horror are these uh, alien gods, these alien creatures. Sometimes they come from the Earth, sometimes they come from the stars, sometimes they're hidden in tombs or under the sea or trapped in icebergs, at other times they're summoned from other dimensions, but these are essentially the ancient beings of the universe that come even before, in described in some stories, they are even before the kind of Christian gods uh, of the time or of the writers that were writing these stories would have uh, been more familiar with. So these are ancient beings of incredible power. Uh, often their imagery is, uh, even though they are described in the books, they're very often followed up with, they are indescribable. So, you know, even though we have a rough understanding of what they look like, and obviously we can, you know, draw them and render them in sort of uh, more modern iterations, 
in the books, they're almost sort of shown as being uh, beyond comprehension as to even what they look like. Um, in Magic the Gathering, this is expressed in the Eldrazi. So the Eldrazi are from the Blind Eternities, which is effectively uh, Magic's answer to space or a dimension outside of dimensions. Um, and yeah, they're lots of tentacles. That tends to be the theme because Cthulhu, who is one of the oldest and sort of first gods in the Cthulhu mythos, um, which is named after, is described as having a cuttlefish head. So he's having Zoidbergy, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, well, all of that kind of stuff. Any kind of like, um, sort of like fish person in fantasy lore tends to come. I guess from... yeah, swamp monster as well has the same, almost exact same look. Yeah, I've yeah. thought about that before. So Cthulhu is described as having giant uh, bat wings, or the wings of a dragon is sometimes described as uh, having lobster claws as hands and a giant cuttlefish head. Um, and the actual figure of Cthulhu, which first pops up in again the Call of Cthulhu. Um, it's said to be several hundred feet tall. So it's this giant being. Uh, many other Cthulhu gods also look like this, but many of them don't look like that at all. As we said earlier, some of them have a bit more of a demon-y thing going on. Um, so we include a lot of Eldrazi. We also included uh, a few demons as well. Um, there's obviously no shortage of Eldrazi. Like, take your pick. There's like almost there's four sets pretty much now which have Eldrazi in them. So you have like all three Zend... Well, you have original Zendikar, um, Battle of Zendikar, Shadows Over and Shadow Eldritch Moon, and I think they pop up in like core sets and things like that. So, you know, you can take your pick from where you get your Eldrazi from. Um, I've tried to go for ones that A, aren't quite as spacey and are a bit more horror So that definitely bends into the shadows over in Strad Block, the Eldrazi mm. from there. I've also tried to do ones which uh, you have to kind of sacrifice something or pay some sort of cost to cast them outside of just a mana cost because I feel that kind of fits the theme of the deck as well. Um, so. We have our gods. Uh, we have a few creatures that can summon gods just kind of on their own because there are lesser gods in the Cthulhu mythos as well. And there are also people that have been touched by the Eldritch powers and are themselves becoming Eldritch horrors as well. So there's a few creatures that fit into that kind of trope. So you have uh, Archfiend's Vessel, Skursdag High Priest, Wharf Infiltrator, Enlightened Maniac and Pawn of Ulamog. So most of these guys uh, create demons and Eldrazi. Special props goes to Wharf Infiltrator uh, as the artwork has uh, a creature or a person that looks like they've been touched by the Eldrazi. So they have like squid arm and they've got a covered face full of like tentacles and all this kind of thing. Um, so those are the, the cultists that can create their own little uh, sort of demigods, if you like. Uh, the main gods, we've already spoken about the big one, is Emrakul, the Promised End. Uh, she is the sort of de facto leader of the Eldrazi, if they were to have a leader. Um, but she is the one that is essentially the the end of the Eldrazi Titan cycle, that when the Eldrazi Titans come down and try and cleanse a plane and sort of start anew on a plane of existence, She's the one that kind of completes that process. Mm. And over the uh, course of Shadows of Innistrad and Eldritch Moon was the uh, Eldrazi Titan in the background where uh, characters in the stories, you could hear them chanting her name and and talking about her and all the clues pointing towards Emrakul's coming, which is very Lovecraftian. Considering you got like you got hit by um, Ulamog, which was the destroyer, and then Kozilek, which was the, um, the the transmuter, and we got to see a lot of those. Not only did we see them obviously in the first uh, set, but even in, in Rise of Eldrazi, Emrakul was always this kind of thing on the horizon. You never really saw it do much. Um, there is a card that you're going to talk about in a second, which does have her like primarily in the artwork and kind of shows her doing something actively. But out of all of them, she was the one you kind of didn't see 
do the most. And even though mm. they think they changed the flavor of Kozilek slightly to be a perverter of truth, it was quite nice to see her have this slow influence over a plane. Because when we first mm. uh, saw um, Zendikar, that there was this aspect when you had things like um, Eldrazi Temple and stuff like that, where you always had this 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 looming suspense feeling of gods. And then when you actually had the tangible battle of Z- battle for Zendikar, Eldrazi, it's like, oh, so they're all squiddy, squiddy titan things. Mm. Okay, cool, whatever. Emrakul was still a little bit like, Oh, I, I don't, I don't like, I don't like the fact it can influence you. And I guess is the whole point is when we're when we're talking about like cultists and that kind of thing. The nice thing about this kind of deck is it does feel like you are slowly corrupting, you are slowly influencing not only your opponent's creatures but your own creatures into doing horrible deeds. Not just mm. come in, smash, 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 kill things. Let's have a fight with Gideon. You know. Yeah, this yeah. was very much the idea of why I didn't include, uh, say, Ulamog Ceaseless Hunger or uh, Kozlek Butcher of Truth because mm. they are very much smashy, destroy Eldrazi, whereas Emrakul, as much as she's a, a big force on the board, her power is that she takes someone else's turn. You know, once she's arrived, she's there to kind of like kind of sit and be this big sort of rattlesnake on your board. And this is the same for other Eldrazi that I put in the deck. So I put in Drownyard Behemoth, Elder Deep Fiend, and Vexing Scuttler. Uh, these three are all Eldrazi from the Shadows Over and Strad block that had the uh, Emerge mechanic. So uh, Emerge is where you can reduce the casting cost of the uh, Eldrazi Horror um, by sacrificing a creature and taking off that creature's converted mana cost in favour of reducing the Eldrazi's mana cost. So I liked that idea again of cultists sacrificing themselves to summon and bring into being mm. these uh, Eldritch gods. Um, they are also very each one of them is very sort of nautical. So a lot of Innistrad is kind of on the coastline. It's kind of like, you know, a lot of port towns and stuff. And again, in a lot of the early stories, because a lot of the writers around early Lovecraft and early cosmic horror lived in and around New England. So the deep sea is still one of the few places we don't know very much about. Yeah, 100%. A lot of these eldritch gods reside in the deep sea and their kind of temples rise up from the ocean when like people kind of happen upon them. So it kind of fits all in really nicely there. Um, They all have flash as well, which is pretty cool so you can kind of do it as a reaction to something so that's pretty good as well um next moving on uh we have two creatures which i think could have taken emrakul's place if emrakul didn't exist as a magic card these two would have been the kind of lead singers for our gods and that's thing in the ice slash awoken horror and dark depths which creates merit lage mm. now merit lage is essentially magic's first flying spaghetti yeah. she was the og the og emrakul yeah. yeah, exactly. So Merit Lage is a 2020 black avatar creature token with flying and indestructible. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, say, uh, Thing in the Ice becomes Awoken Horror. And Awoken Horror is a 7-8 Kraken Horror uh, that bounces all non-horror creatures to their owner's hands. The thing that I really like about these flavorfully, other than the fact of what they are literally as creatures, is that both of these permanents come in with ice counters. So Thing in the Ice comes in with uh, four ice counters and Dark Depths, which is a legendary snowland comes in with 10 ice counters and when the ice counters are removed either by paying mana or by casting instant sorceries for thing in the ice um when they're thawed out that's when they transform so that's really cool this idea of something being in a dark slumber and then eventually when the time is right it emerges to kind of you know take the souls of men really really on theme um they have their own personal cultist which should be very familiar to people who do play Dark Depths in the form of, uh, where is it? Vampire Hex Mage. Mm. So, Vampire Hex Mage is for a black, black. You get Vampire Shaman 2 1, first strike. Uh, sacrifice Vampire Hex Mage, remove all counters from target permanent. So, if you have Dark Depths or Thing in the Ice and a Vampire Hex Mage, the Hex Mage sacrifices itself, 
you instantly get your giant horror, which, I mean, just that little package right there, like this is something that's functionally very viable in EDH, but the fact that it fits so perfectly in our flavor as well mm. is just, yeah, 100%. Good, 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 good. Um, moving on. We do have other gods that kind of sit on their own. Uh, so we have Nemesis of Reason, uh, which has art by Mark Teddin. Uh, Nemesis of Reason causes uh, your opponents to mill cards when you attack them. Big spaghetti, horrible monster. Um, the Nemesis of Reason, just the name of it as well. Mm. It's very cool because it kind of suggests that it's beyond comprehension. You can't even reason with it. Like, it's, you can't even comprehend it. Uh, it's very cool. Yeah, even with the artwork, um, I'm not entirely sure what I'm looking at. Yeah, exactly. Like, where does it start? <laughs> Who knows? Um, Rexiel the Risen Deep is a mm. legendary creature. It's a, a legendary Kraken, 5-8. And it's not really in keeping mechanically with the theme of anything else. When it, it, uh, when it deals damage to a player, uh, you can cast target instant sorcery from their graveyard and then exile it if you were to do so. Island Walk, Island walk and Swamp Walk. Um, but the visual look of Rexiel, this image, uh, art by Eric Deschamps, it, it is uh, Cthulhu. Yeah, like, just, just yeah. use a flat, flat wings and then you've got it done. <laughs> exactly. Like his his imagery is so based on this uh, idea of like this ancient Cthulhu monster that if you didn't include it in this deck, I think you've missed something very, very big there. Mm. Um, there's a card in here which I really couldn't resist putting in, even though it really has nothing to do with <laughs> mechanics either, is uh, uh, Elbrus the, the Binding... Oh, I'm going to try that again. Elbrus <laughs> the Binding Blade uh, slash Withengar Unbound. Oh, so... Like yeah, very cool. This is a card I've always wanted to play. So Elbrus the Binding Blade is an equipment, uh, seven mana cost equipment, which is why it doesn't get played. Uh, a quick creature gets plus one, plus zero. When a quick creature deals combat damage to a player, unattach Elbrus the Binding Blade, then transform it. And it transforms into a 13-13 demon with flying intimidate and trample. Whenever the player loses the game, put, uh, whenever a player loses the game, put 13 plus one, plus one counters on Withengar Unbound. So I mean, that's just crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So you have your sacrificial dagger, which is well in keeping with our, our cultists as well. Your cultist goes in, hits someone with the dagger, the dagger turns into a giant demon. And even the demon itself, Withengar, again by Eric Shumps, he has a kind of very, uh, sort of lots of viscera and tendony kind of look to him. Like there's a lot, there's a few bone plates and spikes and things, but he looks basically like a demon that's been turned inside out, which is very body horror and very uh, very in keeping with what we want to do. So yeah, Withengar makes it into the deck. Um, and then we have a few non-creature kind of Eldritch God cards. So you have Eldrazi Conscription, which is, I think is the card that you were talking about, which has Emrakul in the artwork. Um, and it's an enchantment that turns a creature into a 10-10, or a plus 10, plus 10, and has Trample and Annihilator 2. Uh, again, this is something which I think fits in with a mortal being corrupted and becoming an Eldritch God, because you're literally bestowing it with the power powers of an Eldrazi. Uh, and then we have Consume the Meek and Phyrexian Rebirth, which are both board wipes. Uh, Phyrexian Rebirth basically board wipes everything, and then you create an XX Horror. Uh, and then Consume the Meek is you destroy everything with a... Was it Power? Three Converted or? Mana Cost 3. Converted Mana Cost 3. This is the one I was talking about. This is the one where it's oh, like Emrakul yes. doing something. Yeah, where it's, right. She's not even really doing She's just going... It's like she sneezed. Like that's genuinely yeah. like I think I'm, just, I'm from ever gonna look at that card and think it's an Emrakul sneeze because that's what it looks like to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really cool. I mean, both of these board wipes they're not incredibly efficient. Again, this is a two thirds flavor, one third function deck, but they both give you this aspect of seeing these gods either being like rebirthed from the ruins of the mortal world or destroying the mortal world, mm -hmm. which is 
a very very cool cosmic horror trip um also on phyrexian rebirth uh just the kind of the look of the phyrexian horror that's on it it is very mechanical which doesn't really hit us uh hit our flavor points but it also has the look of um something that is very tenderny and body horror-y as well, a little bit like our demon, which is in keeping with our flavour. So, makes into the deck. A um, couple of honorary mentions for the gods that I didn't include, Gairuda Doom of Depths, Lorthos the Tidemaker, Mindrack Demon, and Cosmic Horror. There is literally a, a creature called Cosmic Horror. Yeah, it's a shame um, he's not better. <laughs> he's I was like, oh, I've never heard that card. Oh, that's why. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, as I say, like two-thirds flavour, one-third mechanic, he didn't even make that one-third mechanic. Well, yeah, you could have done like Lord of the Pit and other things like that, but I mean, there is just such a, a it's such a, a a dampener on like the upkeep triggers and stuff. It's just not worth it, unfortunately. Even if they do yeah. have that feeling, that, that exactly that feeling. Mm. Um, okay, moving on from our gods, we have the narrator category. So in many of these stories, um, especially a lot of the earlier ones, you have them from a first person's perspective. So you have some sort of narrator or some sort of academic who's gotten hold of a. Uh, like a tome or someone's journal or they've been sent a letter which starts them on their quest. A lot of the stories um, of the kind of original Cthulhu mythos uh, written by H.P. Lovecraft and his contemporaries, they are about they're not necessarily about defeating the cosmic evils that are around them but more trying to unravel their secrets. So I mean I keep coming back to Call of Cthulhu because that's kind of one of the stories I base a lot of this um, deck tech on and it surrounds someone who has a relative's journal and his relative recently died in weird circumstances and he finds out that his relative has been trying to unlock this mystery surrounding all these different people and groups of people around the world that have started chanting at the same time uh, in the same sort of week of a month the name Cthulhu and starting to chant uh, their incantations and then suddenly stopped so this trope is kind of carried around in a lot of different stories um is it the the shambler from the stars written by another author also has someone try and translate uh, a book uh, for someone uh, and it's all this idea that you're an academic and you're being handed these different uh, dark mm. books and you're trying to understand them yeah what was the one with um, um johnny depp in it um that's a really good horror film as well and slowly but he's trying to he's trying to unravel the mystery by the end of it it goes crazy and he just goes along with it anyway i can't remember what it is now is it jacob's ladder Oh, I can't remember. I do not know. Uh, anyway, it's a really good film. It's a similar idea. Yeah? The whole point is you don't get a perspective. You can't you can't get a perspective from the cosmic horror. Otherwise, it, does, it doesn't work. I mean, we've had a couple of, um, of this in even a magic story where they try and explain the way they're thinking. And we've seen it from General Tazri's point of view and from Jace's point of view when he's um, talking to Emrakul. Um, that amazing story where he's playing chess with her. Things like that. Mm. Like You, you can't get... Um, an unintelligible direction if you don't have a normal person to see it from um and i guess the whole point is that if you did see something from the cultist point of view it's a very different flavor to the deck it doesn't feel like it has that similar um creeping doom effect when you're already going hey day 47 of cultist that's our 57th sacrifice this month you know like it just doesn't quite work yeah exactly yeah exactly Um, a lot of some of the more modern stories do have a third person perspective so it is it's more reads more like a classic novel but yeah so we wanted this narrator character um it was sorry the return of the sorcerer of the book i was referring to not shamble from the stars uh, return of the sorcerer by clark ashton smith um so our narrator for this deck is going to be jace uh jace unraveler of secrets so again this kind of was softballed in because during the shadows over in Strad storyline jace was our narrator and he did find a journal and it is tamio's journal which also makes it into this deck um and it's, it's almost exactly this trope like tamio was trying to follow the events of shadows over in Strad and eldritch moon but couldn't quite make sense of it uh and this happens before we as the audience and jace enters the story jace enters the story finds tamio's journal and 
and starts trying to go along and unravel this mystery. It's almost beat for beat what you find in these early uh, Eldritch Horror stories. Um, we also have two other cards, Pieces of the Puzzle and Pour Over the Pages, which are two sorceries that are essentially draw effects, but they show Jace's journey um, trying to uncover these mysteries. The flavor text on Pieces of the Puzzle. Um, the clues have begun to reveal a truth I hesitate to accept. Um, that is basically a tagline for this deck and for all of cosmic horror um, <laughs> mythology. So yeah, he's in, they're in, very, very cool. Um, okay, moving on, we have, after the narrator, we have a category which I've dubbed Behold the Unimaginable. So there is this idea, which I spoke about earlier, that a lot of the characters and a lot of the uh, sort of horror aspects that comes from cosmic horror and Lovecraftian horror is this idea that there are things in this universe that you couldn't possibly understand or that when you do understand them, that's the point in which your mind breaks. It's kind of a meme trope uh, at the moment where if it's not cosmic horror, unless your main character ends up in an insane asylum. So it's this kind of aspect of things. Um, this is where a lot of our mill strategy starts to happen, as well as a lot of our card draw. So I've kind of broken this down into several smaller categories. So first we have gain all of the knowledge is my first mini category here. Um, so we have cards like painful truths, peer into the abyss and whispering madness uh these are all instants and sorceries that let you draw cards but at a cost so for example painful truths and peer into the abyss uh peer into the abyss being a new card from uh, m21 um you have to pay life um and also they fit really well into the flavor of our deck with what they're trying to tell the story that they're trying to tell uh whispering madness is a sorcery for two blue black um each player discards his or her hand then draws cards equal to the greatest number of cards a player discarded this way so it's a mill effect it's a wheel effect mm. which isn't really itself too like special for this deck i mean it is it's a demir wheel effect but it has the ability of cipher so you may exile this spell uh encoded onto a creature control whenever that creature deals combat damage to a player its controller may cast a copy of the uh, exiled card without paying its mana cost and i really like the idea of you giving this ability to a creature and then the creature is just so insane that they keep throwing away your hand for you and keeps drawing you cards and everyone else has to like mill their hand as well and keep drawing cards um really helps fill up your graveyard as well so this isn't just like oh i draw a bunch of cards that i then have to discard like it actually actively helps fill up your graveyard with all different kinds of uh, permanents to help you better cast emerald um also the artwork is really cool so it has someone having a whispering little demon in their ear as they're trying to write uh, on their bits of paper really cool really in theme with this deck uh, so that's gain all the knowledge um lose all the knowledge is glimpse the unthinkable paranoid delusions and thought collapse so glimpse the unthinkable is pretty uh self-explanatory it is target player puts top 10 cards of their library into their graveyard um kind of flexible you could do this to someone else but i think this is probably going to be done to your own deck to try and fill up your deck with all different kinds of permanents uh the artwork for this as well uh is one that is going to be the key art uh for the deck um so if you look up our deck on tapped out and you see our key art it's from glimpse the unthinkable um th paranoid delusions and thoughts collapse paranoid delusions is another cyber card which helps you mill as well uh, and then thought collapse is a counter spell that mills opponents when you counter their thing um the uh, imagery on thought collapse uh shows someone literally having the back of their like mind blown apart mm. because they uh yeah i guess they can't comprehend their spell being countered which is really nice and really in keeping with this deck yeah a lot of discard effects could have very easily like from a thematic point of view could have very oh, 100%. Away in, yeah 
like Fort Eurasia and stuff like that. Like it just gives that idea of, I mean, we we can, we can comment on the fact of like, what's the difference between milling and discarding in terms of flavor. But I think um, eight spice racks already kind of coined that, that, <laughs> that field that, yeah, that, mm. like, it does have this idea of, yeah, this, this, this mind, this idea of your mind not being able to hold all of its information and not being able to deal with it. Glimpse on thing, but as you say, is a perfect card for this deck um, in flavor. Um, as well as in function if, and also the other thing that's good about the text like this is that can then inform the way that you make your deck function you go well if this is a card I definitely want to be in the deck and I don't want it just to be there because it seems and it sounds like the right thing uh, but I also want it to work as a piece like, okay so what other cards do I need to put into then make the synergies work with each other and that's kind of where you can start to build this story up a little bit better as well sometimes yeah for sure um, the art sorry the artist for Glimpse of the Unthinkable I was trying to find it is uh, Brandon Kitkowski um, so yeah very cool artist uh, the other card that kind of fits there are two other cards that fit into this uh, general category we have rush of knowledge which is a, another draw effect but you don't have to like pay anything into it really so it's uh, four and a blue for draw cards equal to the highest converted mana cost among permanents you control um, this is obviously helpful mechanically if we do already have Eldrazi out it does draw a sort of cards but it's the uh, it's the flavor text on this one that I really enjoy so limitless power is glorious until you gain limitless understanding uh, Ixdor reality sculptor mm. so it's the idea that you're, you know, it's all very well and good having the knowledge of, like, say, these ancient tomes until you understand what the ancient tomes and all the ancient religions really mean. And then suddenly things become a lot more difficult to handle. <laughs> like, it's really cool. Mm. Um, and obviously the idea, I guess, the the kind of forethought for Russian knowledge is, is expecting you to then have to discard a bunch of hands uh, cards out of your hand. So you have all the information until suddenly you can't handle it anymore and you literally have to put the cards into the bin, which is a really nice little, uh, little flavor beat there. Like it's the same with Peer into the Abyss. Like there's no way you can keep all of those cards in your hand. No, like, most of them are going in the bin. Um, so Although yeah. interestingly, I did get peered into the Abyss uh, a couple of days ago, um, and I did have a Thought Vessel, which is also oh, a deck a card mystery, <laughs> which was very good. Um, I think then someone did after like two turn rotations blow up my Thought Vessel, and then I had, did have to bid a bunch of cards. But for two turns, I had a I had a hand full of like I think it was something like thirty eight cards. Oh, in see, hand. Even from a functional point, that that's horrible. You end up going yeah. like I don't even know what to do. I've probably got something in here. Give me ten minutes to find it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the burden of knowledge. <laughs> exactly. Well, the burden of knowledge it brings me nicely onto the last card in uh, this little collection is Price of Knowledge, which is an enchantment. Uh, six and a black players have no maximum hand size, and at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, Price of Knowledge deals damage to that player equal to the number of cards in that player's hand. So this punishes opponents rather than you, but I do like the... I mean, just the flavour of it is just incredible. The mm. Price of Knowledge is literally what we've been talking about just uh, now. I think it's funny that if you do end up doing the rush of knowledge of, of a huge amount, you don't pay the price for knowledge, weirdly enough. No. You go, oh, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, this is fine. I haven't got any eyes, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, well, the artwork, exactly, you just brought it up. Uh, the artwork by Dan Scott um, shows some sort of uh, cleric or scribe um, maniacally laughing over a pile of books which has a bunch of blood on it and you can tell that the blood is also staining his hands and his eyes have been uh, burst so it's clear that he's so oh, I think he's plucked them because they think that yeah yeah yeah. In his oh, yeah that's what I mean yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it has no flavor text but there's so much more flavor to this card than say uh say Rush of Lodge I think yeah it's a good signifier of Dan Scott you did a great job there buddy horrific <laughs> artwork um, so what are these uh, ancient tomes and what are these scriptures that tend to pop up in cosmic horror and Lovecraftian lore uh, the big one and the one which because there are actually quite a, a lot of books as, as there are also quite a lot of gods in the mythology and the extended cosmology if you like of uh, Cthulhu lore uh, but the main one is the Necronomicon 
Now, the Necronomicon is also known as the Book of the Dead or various kind of names surrounding that. Almost every writer that writes about the Necronomicon gives it a new sort of name hovering around that theme. Um, and this is where we start to kind of have a bit of fudgy wudginess in the lore because whilst the Necronomicon was first referenced by Lovecraft and then very quickly by other writers um, that were kind of writing at the same time as him, it's it's kind of been in the, the fantasy mainframe for a while now and it kind of bleeds the line between cosmic horror and zombie horror and sci-fi everyone kind of uses it in a slightly different way so for example the evil dead books um or the films sorry have the necronomicon in the films but it's very much the book of the dead which they use to summon up demons uh, that are more like necrotic zombie demons than they are like eldritch demons um so what I've done here is I've kind of gone along with that theme because it's a bit easier to do. Uh, and I've included Grimori of the Dead, which is the magic card that I've kind of stuck in for our what Necronomicon. Did you say? Grimori of the Dead? Grimoire. For gr- Grimoire. Oh, there we go. go you know what? I've, I've never known how to pronounce that word. And I thought I'd have a punt. And then yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you punted. I'm not going to lie. That makes you happy. <laughs> yeah. <Grimoire. laughs> I'm glad you corrected me. All right. Grimoire of the Dead, um, which is essentially Magic's Necronomicon. Um, So Grimoire of the Dead is a four-mana enchantment, so you pay one tap it, discard a card, which helps us, to put a discard, uh, to put a study counter on Grimoire of the Dead. Grimoire, sorry. Uh, And then you can tap Grimoire (laughs) of the Dead uh, to remove three study counters from it, put all creatures from all graveyards onto the battlefield under control. They are black zombies in addition to their other cuddles and types. Mm. So again, zombies as opposed to demons, but it there are stories uh, in the Cthulhu mythos of people who read these ancient tomes and then suffer some kind of uh, dismemberment. Um, so, for example, The Return of the Sorcerer, which was a story I referenced earlier, uh, has someone reading the Necronomicon, and then the person who's gifted the ne- Necronomicon to our reader um, divulges that their associate is all chopped up into bits and then they go into the other room and the person's arms are moving around and the head is still active and it's like haunting them in this dismembered state because they've gained powers from the Necronomicon. So there are some sort of uh, necromantic uh, themes and flavours to these stories um, which I kind of had to lean in a little bit for this flavour pick. Um, Other cards that kind of follow in the Necronomicon way are Obsidat's Aid, which is the sorcery that can return target permanent from the graveyard to the battlefield, and Phyrexian Reclamation, which is an enchantment that you pay two life, return target creature card from the graveyard to your hand. Uh, Phyrexian Reclamation, again, a Phyrexian card, but this one's particularly, the RK post artwork, does suggest more of a ritualistic uh, summoning as opposed to like a sci-fi mm. technological one. Mm. Um, so it made it into the deck. Yeah, I think, they, I think they moved deliberately away from the whole culty aspect of it to be more of a, a, a scientific kind of aspect. I think probably deliberately because they did the Eldrazi and they wanted to separate the two of them. But yeah, back in the day, the Frexians did have... I mean, Yorgmore turned into a giant death cloud. You can't yes. get much more like cosmic and weird than that i don't think so yeah no i think, I think old frex is very fine to look into a little bit plus um plus yeah the, the theme the theme is very strong there yeah for sure uh, and then the last one is extract from darkness which is a sorcery where each player puts two uh, the top two cards of his or her library into his or her graveyard then puts a creature card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control um this one's maybe one of the weakest cards in the deck flavor wise but the artwork uh is shows a creature coming out of a sewer which has kind of an eldritch feel to it mm. and it does get stuff out the graveyard which will help us in our sort of uh 
mechanical efforts. So this one, I think out of all the cards in the deck, this is the one where the flavor is sort of there, but the kind of one-third mechanics philosophy that I've gone by pushed this one into being included into the mm. deck. Because um, mechanically, it's got Graveyard Recursion and Mill, and it's got a bit of an Eldritch creature on it. It's in Demir Colors. It can go in the deck. So, yes, there we are. We're almost at the end. We're almost there. So the last uh, main category I've got, unless I've missed something huge, um, is Dark Idols. So... The again referencing Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, one of the big clues in that story, which our narrator looks at to kind of then find out about the cult of Cthulhu and to find out how this eldritch god is in existence, is he comes across uh, an artifact which is a stone idol made of a stone which no one can really figure out what the stone is. It's a big meteorite that doesn't seem to have any uh, sort of earthly bound to it. And this is where we first get the first impression of Cthulhu themselves. The idol is a carving of Cthulhu. Uh, So this is where we get our description of it having a cuttlefish head and uh, lobster arms and bat wings. And this idea of idols and artifacts and arcane uh, objects that hold some sort of power, either to summon gods or to be a representation of them that you worship, is very prevalent in a lot of these different kinds of stories. Um, and so that's what we're going with here. Um, for example, again, another good story which uh, we have someone looking at an arcane artifact is the uh, Clark Ashton Smith story, Ubo Safla, which was part of that first wave of Cthulhu mythos stories, where someone looks into an orb that transports them so far back in time that all is left is this ancient eldritch god, Ubo Sathla, kind of almost before the Big Bang. So he's just kind of floating there as this sort of big consciousness. So this is where I wanted to go with with these ones. Um, The kind of direct idols of our ancient gods are represented as ancient stone idol, uh, idol of oblivion, and shrine of the forsaken gods. Uh, Ancient stone idol and idol of oblivion are artifacts that essentially can become big creatures. And then they're artworks are based off of the land shrine of the forsaken gods which is a land from zendikar which depicts three uh the three gods of the zendikari religion which is ula emiria and kozai which we find out in the story of zendikar are actually misinformed representations of the three eldrazi titans so I kind of feel like this was almost an also including these decks mm. and why at first glance, if you were to just look at these uh, on the tapped out, if you were just to put it into creatures and then you saw that I had uh, ancient stone idol in the creature section, you might not quite get where my thought process was. But if you look at it from this angle of seeing that these are representations of eldritch gods, which people still don't quite understand where they've come from, it fits almost perfectly into what we're trying to achieve. Um, and Amiria obviously being the uh, representation of Emrakul, who is our big bad god in this set. Mm. Um, mechanically, Shrine of the Forsaken Gods also taps for extra colorless mana, which helps us again cast Eldrazi. So it's kind of, it's all there really. Um, and out of all of the the kind of flavor picks for this set, this is the one which I was actually like surprised at how well it fit um, when I kind of first looked at it. Uh, yeah, I was quite happy with those. Mm. Well, also the thing that you've done here is you've definitely touched on all of the different aspects. So you could very easily just focus on the cult and the deep ones, or you could specifically go down a the mill discard route if you want to go for the, the descending madness that people have and then go through reanimation thing of we're going, not only am I going to blow your minds, but I'm going to bring back the gods that you believe in back to life. I mean, you can flex the flavor of this very, very comfortably in the direction. It's quite nice that you've touched on every aspect of it to kind of make it all work together as well. So you've got like a, a story as you go through the cards. 
indeed. Um, just the last couple of bits, then, just to round off the deck. Um, the other, the mana rocks that I've included also in the Dark Idols category um, are Sol Ring, Thought Vessel, and Arcane Signet. Um, Sol Ring is a bit of a cheat. This is a real cheat, this one. Uh, the flavor text is Lost to Time is the artificer's art of trapping light from a distant star in a ring of purest gold. Um, it had the word star in it. <laughs> and I wanted a soul ring. Oh god, amazing! Cosmic horror star. Sure, it's you know it, you know it gets um, worse when you try and justify it, right? You could just go, "Hey, soul ring," and everyone goes, "Yeah, cool, fine, fine soul ring." Well, no, I feel like I have to justify it. Um, Arcane signet is really just is more to do with the name, but it also helps with the fact that it helps with colors mana and thought vessel also helps with our ridiculous draw effects. Um, but I like the idea of there's there's this idea that your thoughts and your kind of um, consciousness can be trapped in in an artifact, which is, again, something which uh, pops up from time to time in Elder Stories. Um, the lands, I haven't really talked about the kind of bulk of the lands. I've touched on a couple of specific examples. Um, so I put in the Theros Temples, the Temple of Deceit, Temple of Enlightenment, Temple of Silence. Um, visually, they're not really on point flavor-wise, but I think Deceit, Enlightenment, and Silence are almost three perfect words to describe, like, any cult. Um, Temple of the False God, which is the uh, taps for two colors if you have five more lands. Um, Temple of the False God, very much like Shrine of the Forsaken Gods, kind of fits into that flavor as well. Um, I've included the Shock Lands, uh, Watery Grave, uh, Godless Shrine, and Hallowed Fountain, because um, each one of those, with a little bit of bending, uh, have kind of eldritch connotations. Um, Hallowed Fountain and Godless Shrine are holy places. Uh, Godless Shrine is obviously very apt. And then Watery Grave kind of again fits in with this. Uh, this kind of dark depths aspect that we're trying to go for. Mm. Um, and I also included Tainted Isle and Tainted Field, which are the uh, lands where they can tap for the both their colours if you can control a swamp. So it's the Dimir one and the Orzhov one. Mm. Um, again, because of this idea of corruption of of the land, I quite liked. Um, the rest of the deck's pretty much basic lands. Oh, I also added in Drownyard's Temple, because uh, that is, as far as the story of Shadows of Inner goes, that is the kind of main location of the portal that summons Imrakul. Mm. So I just kind of think there's a little nod, like Drownyard Temple's pretty good. Um, is also, mechanically, you can return it from the graveyard to the battlefield tapped. So if you do end up milling it, you can also bring it back. Mm. Uh, and then Arcane Sanctum is the Triland. Um, again, the artwork... Uh, is pretty good for kind of an eldritch thing. It's kind of a, an arcane sanctum that sits just outside of time in a different dimension. So I kind of liked the sort of the look of it for for the deck. I wasn't going to include the triland unless the artwork kind of fit in. I think we just about got there. Yeah. Um, the rest is basics. Um, you can have fun with the lands. I think. Um, I put the rest as basics because I kind of like the slightly less tuned mana base for a very untuned deck. Um, and the artworks I went for because this is important. Um. I went for all shadows over in Strad, uh, and specifically, I went for the Jonas de Ro Island, which is the one which has the lighthouse and the kind of typhoon uh, spouts in the background. Very cool. Um, I went for the Adam Paquette Plains, which at first glance doesn't really seem that eldritch until you look at the skyline and you see that all the clouds are forming like a lattice, which could be tendrils or as very sort of Phyrexian lattice in the sky, which is very foreboding, very cool. Um, I think, was it Stranger Things? The TV show Stranger mm. Things relied a lot on that iconography for their third season of this mm. kind of thing in the clouds. Really cool. Uh, and the swamp I went for was the uh, Andreas Roja uh, swamp, which shows a cryptolith statue, which I didn't include very much in the rest of this deck. So the cryptoliths on Innistrad are the um, stone uh, sort of markers, which kind of are part of the clue network, which Jace follows to try and find uh, Emrakul. Um, and I didn't include a lot of iconography of the crypt of this. I could have leaned into it, um, but I thought this swamp was also good enough to make the cut. Yeah. 
And there we are. There we are. An hour and a quarter into it. We've, we're done. So that is my that is my 100 card pile for Lovecraftian Eldritch Horror Cosmic Horror deck. Um, I actually think it will play okay. I am planning to build this in paper. I've got about two thirds of the cards in my collection, um, which is again kind of why I looked into building this just myself and then thought it was maybe uh, deep enough to do an episode on. Mm. Um, I'm missing a few cards. Dark, dark, dark Depths is going to be a card that I will have yeah. to invest it's, it's also pretty better to get now whilst the price has dropped a little from uh, the Master Sword. Well, yes, so. just, just got reprinted, right? Yeah, the exactly. other, there, is, there is another card that summons um, Merit Lage, which I don't think quite works. Mm, that's what a slumber, it? isn't it? The slumber of Merit Lage. Um, yes. Mer- yeah, Merit Lage is slumber. There we go. Yeah, it's, it's a lot, a lot, takes a lot longer to get it off. Um, mm. So let me check quickly what it does. Uh, yeah, if you have 10, it's no permanence. So you could. Oh, yeah, it's no permanence. Yeah. yeah that that sure. leads more into her Ice Age influence more than the fact that she is an Eldritch Horror influence. But Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. So. Yeah, because I think the only other way I think, because I thought as I was going through, it's when you got to Temple of the Full Squad. I'm like, oh, yeah, because you look at, because you have the artwork of the one where it's. Um, um, what's her name? Fish girl. Um, Kiora, Kiora. <laughs> jumping out of the water. Whereas the other ones, um, a temple devoted to Corona, who was the first no, yes. god. And I was thinking, if you did, if you did have reasons to want to go five color, then Corona is a very good option for this, even if she is a bit jankier on terms of like viability. Oh no, no, I, I hundred percent agree. I put out a little um, teaser for this deck um, on Twitter uh, a long, quite a while ago, actually. Now, like sort of three or four weeks ago, um, and I put out three cards on the deck without the commander, and I said, try and guess what we're going to do. And immediately, people were like, oh. Eldritch Cosmic Horror, um, but they were trying to guess the commander, and mm-hmm. Corona was the one that popped up. So I, I completely agree. Having a false, destructive idol mm-hmm. of a god is very much like sort of in keeping. And actually, exactly. five color would help me include a lot of the uh, red cards. And actually, well, obviously, red and green are the two colors missing, but there are a lot of red cards specifically. Molder sets that I could have fit in, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of green cards from Shadows of Rinnestrad that I didn't include, yeah. like Emerald Pools of Banjul, that would have been perfect for this deck, or even Stromkirk you- Cultist, which is yeah, a red exactly. card. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I guess you could also technically go if you wanted to go Nephilim, and if your group's going to allow for it, if you wanted to go fight. I mean, I get the whole point is if you're going with a flavor build, then it's very rare that your team, your group, unless you've gone, unless you've made a really competitive flavor deck, which good, good God, bully to you. Um, yeah, there's very rare they'll turn around and go, nah. If anything, if someone goes, oh, I've done a chair deck, I'm like, well, sit down, sir. Let's come and play it. I want to see what you've done. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, there's other yeah for sure. Game. Yeah, and you've even got a big ass maybe board, haven't you, of cards, other cards that you couldn't make fit and or didn't necessarily, it didn't fit maybe yeah. your specific flavor of it. Um, so obviously this is kind of like a... Um, um, not subjective, but I mean, it is also very subjective. Sure, a lot of the ones that I put in the maybe pile that are that is on tapped out because again, as I said, there's about there's about another sort of two decks that I didn't even type in. Um, there, are, there's just like little subtle things. So if you wanted to go, if you didn't weren't really that fussed about direct references, but more about just the feel of like Eldritch Horror, there's cards, uh, for example, like Nagging Thoughts, which is uh, one in a blue. Look at the top two cards of your library. Put one into your hand and the other into your graveyard. It has madness. A lot of these cards have madness. I realize or deliver Delirium, which is another mechanic from the Shadows Over the Shadows set, um, which if you were, again, if you were to do just cards from uh, Shadows Over Innistrad, maybe put Corona as the commander so you can have five colours, but the bulk of the deck, if you were to just do Shadows Over Innistrad, you could do a really good cosmic horror deck that really fits in the flavour, because I think they nailed it for that set. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, yeah, I wanted to kind of branch out and do a few other bits. Um, there are also cards which functionally have no plausible intent for the deck but just the name of it was really good so descent into madness is an enchantment mm. from original in which i could have put in there um cosmic horror again is one that we mentioned before 
cultist staff is just an equipment plus two plus two. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It's hard to There are some cards you have to go. Well, I can't. I just can't justify this. this is, it's, it's sometimes really hard to justify the flavor side more than the function side. Um, I guess it depends on how much. Uh, I guess it depends on how much you value like your 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 play experience compared to like viability to win or at least influence the game because most of the time mm. i don't care if i win or not i just care about if i get to do something silly and if your deck doesn't even get to do something silly then what, what was the point you know um, yeah exactly um so yeah there we are um yeah, right, so i'm gonna put the tapped out link in the description below if you haven't already been following it as i've been talking say so if you've been listening on public transport it's a bit hard to do on your phone um but do check out the tapped out link i've put everything into their custom categories as well so you can follow it along a little bit better um let us know what you think of the deck whether you think that we sacrifice too much uh, mechanical influence for the flavor whether you think that actually some of our mechanical throw-ins were a bit of a cop-out and you'd rather have seen us go full flavor and um, also let us know on twitter at mt flavoring uh, what kind of flavor build you want us to see us do in the future so we've already mentioned that uh, nathan has been trying to build something that's based directly on an idea. You know, I might, I might do off the back of this. I might, I might do that because I don't have to necessarily yeah. make it in paper to to justify. It. And I've got a fair amount of random text written in in my notes that should probably be put to use, and not just something I look at every now and again and sigh to myself that it's not going to happen. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, or if guys, if you'd rather see us do a flavor deck tech based around Magic the Gathering lore, I mean, look, like Lord knows there are people that do like guild decks or do based around a legendary creature, or they do mm. storyline decks, or it's block set, that, block decks, that block, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Let's yeah. know what kind of builds you want to see us do because we're not overly fussed about building tier one commander decks um but we do like building. we've done enough of that haven't we andy we've built enough <laughs> tier <one. laughs> oh yeah in our personal collection um but we do like making functional flavor decks that mm. work as well as like kind of spark choice let us know um emails go to mtflavoring at gmail.com check out our youtube channel this will eventually be on youtube so if you are watching this on youtube now then you're listening to me talk in the past about you watching in my future but you're present um and if you're listening to this as a podcast then if you want to see it in visual form it will be up on youtube in a couple of weeks time uh empty uh empty flavoring magic the flavoring is our youtube channel it's all the same. You know where we yeah. are. Um, <laughs> my post on Twitter is at Andy Manface. Nathan's, yours is at the Fox in the Moon. Uh, I, I put a post up, and no one, no one, no one, no one even liked it. So I don't even see the point anymore. So point well, living. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, off the back of that, we will talk about secret Les next week. Uh, don't worry, we haven't ignored them. Them happening. We just need to. Oh, for sure. Yes. So yeah. To kind of to kind of kind of put a time date on this uh, episode, there have been two new secret layer drops. Uh, Prime slime, time mime, whatever it is, the slime <laughs> one, and uh, and the mummy dogs. Yeah, I don't know what their names are, but we will be talking about them next week. Oh, well, the actual um, dogs. Oh, well, yeah. They, they made sure to put it in the flavor text. Don't worry. Anyway, uh, that's next week. <laughs> that's next week. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, other than that, thank you so much for listening. This has been Magic the Flavoring. We'll see you soon.